2: Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti and I thank you for joining us. I know there are many other things that you could be doing right now, like perhaps uh, using a toilet brush on your B-Day, or perhaps getting caught up on other stuff. But now, with me in the studio today, I'm joined by Allison Rudd and the only living Gearbrandt in captivity. It's Mr. James Gearbrandt. And down the line, far more interesting than these two is the man who, for charity, ran a marathon in a tutu. It's Matt Dickinson.
3: Hi, Gap. I've still got the tutu on. If you, I'm wearing it all around the house. I've yep. got into it.
2: You English people and your strange fetishes. Now, um, you did it to uh, uh, to raise money for charity, and uh, I wanted to know if you had reached your goal. And
3: We did, thanks to the generosity of yourself and, and many people like you. Yes, to cut a long uh, story short daughter of a very good close friend of mine died uh, in September rowing and um, in those circumstances you just rally around to do any tiny little thing you can to well show that you're thinking of them I guess and um, we uh, among many other things we're doing um, did a run for the charity Momentum that look after families of people with sick or dying children um and um we raised uh 11 grand and counting so yep saw mark chapman from the bbc tweet that the marathon is just one of those things that shows the human race in a very good light and it certainly felt like that yesterday
2: well, and I'm sure there's a Just Giving page that, that's still out there and open if uh, you want to get involved. Now, we've got the uh, PFA Player of the Year Awards uh, to discuss. I'm sure we will go and mention how absolutely stupid this award is uh, given uh, the format. Uh, we'll be looking ahead to the Champions League semifinals, maybe talking a tiny bit of Classico, which I really enjoyed last night. But we start, of course, with the greatest cup competition in the world. Allison. Wembley, semifinals, Arsenal and City. I thought these two semifinals lived up to the hype. I, I watched them on, uh, on, on the television apparatus and I really enjoyed them.
1: Well, one was a lot better than the other. Come on.
2: <laughs> Which one was better?
1: Uh, there, was, there was a classic. The Chelsea Spurs game was a classic.
2: but Arsenal and City, the, the drama, the, the fact that, you know.
1: The drama. The drama as in all <laughs> matches have drama. There was quite a lot of poor football in the uh, yeah, Arsenal it, City game. Okay. And it, I, it was stop, start, stop, start. Um, just because it went to extra time does not make it a classic.
2: More interesting to me is Arsene Wenger changing things up, right? This is the guy who we've said he never changes, blah, blah, blah. Is his philosophy, yak, yak, yak. If Stuart Robson were here, he'd say he lacks a defensive structure. James, he went three at the back. He dropped in, who y'all keep talking as if he's some kind of God's gift to football. He played a 3-4-2-1. This is, for him, this is this is pretty unusual, right?
4: I mean, it definitely is unusual because I think um, he played it in the league game before, hadn't he? But I think before that, he hadn't played a back three for like 20 years, I think. At the very least, you have to kind of say it shows a little bit of, of flexibility and, and the ability to kind of adapt to circumstance. Whether it will be a long-standing solution, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's a, is it a system that fits the squad particularly well at the moment? I don't know, but as a kind of stopgap, it's worked quite well for them.
2: Did it work in this game? I think when, when, when you consider, City hit the woodwork twice, um, and obviously the disallowed goal, and we can blame the, the linesman, whose name is Child, by the way, as I, as I, as I discovered today, isn't it? it? Like, isn't his name like Steve Child? I mean, you've got wonderful names. I mean, it used to be a linesman called Roger Bone, um, I always thought of bone as a verb, actually. Than... But anyway, um, and, and now Steve Child. I, but it seems that a lot of the incidents went against City. Is that unfair?
1: Yeah, I th- I I think if you step back, although I, I I was rather mean-spirited at the start, wasn't I, saying Boy. it wasn't a great game. I, I don't think it was, but I do, I do think, uh, in terms of prettiness of the football and chances created, uh, City could count themselves as unlucky, certainly. You have to then imply that that means that The key was not the Arsenal formation the key was bad luck but I mean I'm I'm not surprised Wenger's gone for the back three partly because it's 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 in vogue but partly he's in press conferences he has praised it as a formation that allows you to to be more defensively structured and to sort of get stuck in a bit more which is something that an accusation that's been leveled at arsenal so much that you kind of think he has to have gone to bed at night thinking how can i make people believe that my team are able to tackle and think defensively and put guts before flair and if you play 3 at the back you are just a bit more the focus is more on your on your on your destructive players perhaps than than your flair players and they certainly seemed to take their impetus from the 3 at the back and play like they were going to be pragmatic, which, as we all know, isn't what Arsenal are very often. And in that sense, then they did deserve to win because they played the occasion and they played the opposition intelligently.
3: Where well, I'm sort of loath to suddenly start thinking Wenger is, you know, stumbled across, you know, the, the future or this is the answer. Is I mean, you look at Oxley Chamberlain, who was one of their best performers. He played at right wing back. I mean, it was only a month ago that Wenger was. Talking about how you know central has always been where he's, he's seen him. That you know this is he needs to sort of stick to that, and he needs to stay at Arsenal to learn. And we, we know oxlade Chamberlain is looking at a move to Liverpool. Thinks there's a temptation to learn a lot more under a new manager because he he has completely stalled at Arsenal for for some seasons now. His career's just you know, that had a lot of hope has just completely faltered. So suddenly he's throwing that wing back and say performs admirably, but that's a complete change from what Wenger was talking about, his best role being very recently, and the idea that suddenly, get off Arsen's back, critics, I, I, I'm not buying that. I've, you know, I've sort of got to the point where I'm, I've seen enough completely sort of indefensible... Performances and just failure to failure to do things like he did yesterday with a back three. I mean, I was at the Chelsea game at Stamford Bridge where they just sleepwalked into a defeat. I mean, they didn't try anything. They didn't try and do anything clever. So I've seen it. Yeah, you know, we've seen more occasions where they haven't tried stuff to get too excited by this one yesterday just yet.
2: James, a lot of people will make a big deal out of the fact that Pep Guardiola will finish the season empty-handed. Does it matter? Does does it change the way? we see City's performance and City's development or possibly lack thereof this season? Is there a broader message there?
4: I I think it it, it kind of takes away the opportunity to kind of redeem this season because I think we're pretty much all in agreement that in terms of their league performance, it's been disappointing. They have not lived up to the level that we expected to win a domestic trophy would have kind of redressed the balance a little bit. You could have said, okay, you know, it was a difficult season, but look, hey, they're early in the pep project and hey, you know, they did win the FA Cup as well. Now I think we're looking again at what seems to be quite a sort of, I don't want to say chronic because it's it's only their first season, but it's certainly, you know, it's a kind of established pattern of Manchester City performing poorly against the teams that you would consider their competitors or you know the other big teams this season I mean I think even though
2: they hit the woodwork and had the decisions go against them and even though Pep says he's very happy with the performance yeah you're still not I think you could maybe excuse them if it was a one off but
4: the, the as I say it, the right. pattern is so established like I mean I was at the game where they played they played Arsenal in the league and again you know you could have said they were unlucky that day by far the better side they missed some good chances I think I can't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure they had a good penalty shout turned down. Out of the 11 times they've played the top seven in the league this season, they've only won two. Another defeat yesterday to Arsenal. I think once it happens so frequently, those excuses were a little thinner, I think.
2: Alisson, it's minute nine of the first extra time period. It's 1-1. Sergio Aguero is, is tired or limping or, or whatever. He takes off Aguero and he takes off Fernandinho and he replaces them with Fabian Delph and Fernando and puts De Bruyne at centre-forward. Now, he had Ianacho on the bench and Ianacho would come on a few minutes later for, for Raheem Sterling, but I thought to myself, that's that's really odd. Was this a situation where he's like, I'm going to be really clever again and surprise them by, by playing De Bruyne at centre-forward, which, of course, has worked so well in the past, uh, not... What was he thinking?
1: Oh well, I think you've just given us a very nice, in a nutshell, example of why I personally just don't understand Pep Guardiola. I don't. Ooh,
2: are you going to say Fradiola? Are you going to say? Oh, that? No, I'm not going to yeah. say it.
1: I'm not going to say it. But it does seem. To... I know. I know it sounds trite, and I know he's got an amazing track record, and I was a big fan too. But it just seems to me that he he ignores, deliberately ignores the obvious, and he came in and he's put. His philosophy above what the Premier League demands of you as a manager. James has, has gone through quite forensically and explained how disappointing the season has been when he's come up against particularly managers who are good, good at their job. He just doesn't seem to want to be the person that says, I have to adapt. I have to accept the opposition are strong in this particular area. I have to not play the way I want to play. He, presumably somewhere in his little book, he had this idea that maybe he, he wanted De Bruyne to be the key and he wasn't going to I don't know. It didn't work. It, it didn't work. It didn't, work. Minutes, it didn't it didn't work. It didn't work. And it was a stupid thing to do. And I think everyone, like you, Gab, are thinking, Oh, that's a bit peculiar when you've got a centre an out and out centre forward on the bench. Why are you doing that? It's because he's putting his his thinking above the obvious. I. e. doing the obvious makes him look like a pretty average manager and he doesn't want people to think he does the obvious. There's something perverse about the way he approaches a lot of what he's done in his first season in English football, I would say.
2: I personally like the fact that he does things differently. Um, and it would be really boring if everybody did everything the same all the time. I did not expect that it would take him this long to get his message across to his players. I did not expect him to have such basic decisions of, of squad management backfire, going all the way back to Hart and Bravo, going back to the to company's physical condition, to, to, to the dropping of Aguero, all this nonsense but i'm personally i'm really glad he's in the premier league because we get to see him up close and it's and it's a fascinating story and you're seeing somebody who i think is extremely special go and work and that means you're always going to get things right
3: i think he's fascinating because you know clearly he's, he's incredibly capable guardiola and sometimes he makes decisions that you think really and then you see them unfold and you say ah that's why he's paid a lot of money to do the job he is he's creative finds creative solutions but it has felt this season like he's throwing a lot of stuff around and not uh, I mean maybe he's given himself the grace of a season of learning, learning about players, learning about the league, maybe he's thinking like well I will just sort of try this, try that, but I suspect he's expected better results from more of those experiments Um, I'm I'm sure given the standards he sets for himself, we know how obsessive he is we know how uh, hard he is on himself, how perfectionist he is, I'm sure he's pretty gutted by how the season has gone
2: The other semi-final, Chelsea and Spurs. Uh, James, I'm sure as a child, which you were not that long ago, you were excited about FA Cup semi-finals. In fact, your experience is probably different because when you were a kid, the FA Cup was not more important than the Premier League. Am I right? No. It was never a moment, right? Was for the rest of us? Was there a moment when the FA Cup was more important than the Premier League, Alison?
1: No, it was, but that's partly because of what you could see on telly and you could see the FA Cup and they spent all day building it up. And you were made to think that it was the most important thing in the world.
2: So when Antonio Conte goes and drops Hazard and Costa, seems logical to you, right? Did it?
1: It's.
4: I'd have to say I was a bit surprised because um, his sort of apparently total lack of faith in Mishi Bacuai has been a real kind of theme of the season almost, to the point where, you know, he's sort of, even when Costa has been injured or suspended, he's played other people up front instead. So after I was quite surprised to see him play in such a big game. You know, if Conte was under under scrutiny, people would be saying, Oh God, he got a bit lucky, you know, why didn't he start Hazard? But actually, having brought him on, he has the sort of has the right for that decision to be seen as as, as a good one, if you
2: see what I mean. Our friend and colleague Duncan Castles wrote this this very eloquent piece where he absolutely destroyed Conte, says he you know, he was found out after the United game. Um was this actual tactical, tactical well, massive talk or I, was it just kind of like... I
1: genuinely think it was because um, he just decided we just won't play through the midfield. We'll bypass midfield altogether. Let's just do that, see what happens. Because Spurs are the other team that have unpicked them this season. and I was at his uh, press conference before the game going into Wembley and he, he was genuine in his um, praise of Spurs and there was a slight fear there, which I've not seen in him before. He has, to do, he has to do something. They were, they were the team capable of wrecking the double dream. And he, he got it right. He just played long balls. That's why he played Batuai, because he could hold the ball up, which he did in a sort of understated, functional way. Absolute masterstroke. Spurs did not adapt. They kept pressing. They kept the space behind them. Chelsea exploited it. Boom. There you go. That's how you win a semi-final against a team that were arguably playing the better football.
3: You know, you bring in a player like William, who's you know been one of Chelsea's best players in previous seasons. Have been relatively underused this season, and you, as a manager, I guess you you've seen enough on the training ground. You've seen enough of his performance. You know, the, you've seen enough of his psychology that you know if you you trust him in a game like this, he's going to step up, and he certainly did that.
2: I don't know, you guys. <laughs> I mean, much as I'd love to praise Conte here, I kind of go by way. What... I saw in the pitch and I saw, you know, it did feel to me like Conte's attitude was like, all right, I need Hazard because he's my best player for the run-in. I need Diego Costa, even though he's been awful for a long time, but I trust him more than Batshuayi. I'm just going to keep these guys on the bench. And then if we're killing Spurs, I don't need to bring them on. If we're getting killed, I don't need to bring them on. And if the game's in the balance, maybe I bring them on and see what they can do because ultimately I don't really care as much about the FA Cup as I do about hanging on and making sure we win a league title. This is a person who is is obsessed with, with winning and working and so on, but he also, I think, has a clear hierarchy of priorities, and winning the Premier League is his priority. By the same token, are we being unkind a little bit to, to Tottenham here? I mean, in the end, the reason that it was 2-2 and there was still a game in the balance for Hazard and Costa to come into... Is because of a a free kick, which isn't necessarily genius strategic planning by the manager. And a really, really stupid penalty given away by Hong Min Song, right? I mean, otherwise, Spurs are walking this, right? Am I I wrong here? I mean, did you guys see Chelsea create tons of chances, James?
4: No, but I think... (sighs) There was that sort of, that, that rather heated debate between Alan Shearer and Jermaine Jenas at the end of the game over whether Spurs had deserved to win and, and whether Chelsea were, were lucky. And, you know, certainly Spurs, they had maybe more of the balance of play and there were times when they really had Chelsea pinned in, in their own half. But I think there's a difference between weathering spells of pressure and, and playing a lot of the game on the back foot and playing poorly and actually thought Chelsea defended generally play well I thought Louise was excellent again and and you know you you could equally say about um Tottenham's goals that you know the the second one was was you know a brilliant indefensible pass pass by Ericsson Ericsson. I thought Tottenham played well but I just don't think that Chelsea didn't
2: deserve to win Tico do we blame Pochettino for not fixing things after Hazard and uh, Costa came on
3: um, do we blame him? Um, Matt Hughes seems to. Yeah, well, there's always more that a coach can do. I'm sure. Um, but equally, yes, if you're throwing on someone at Hazard, then um, you're throwing on well, potentially the Football Writers' Player of the Year, if not the Players' Player of the Year. So, yeah, you know, okay,
2: but, but, but Tottenham threw on Kyle Walker and George and Kudu.
3: I mean, you I think they were, thrown on
2: Vincent Janssen as well.
3: There were bigger issues to be honest. As much issues to be asked about the way he set up at the start, wasn't there? With with some at wing back being run ragged, the penalty obviously being um, been drawn into a, a rash tackle like that, being played in such an unfamiliar position. You, you know, you're not surprised players make errors like that because they're either yeah they're uncertain, they've been put into unfamiliar situations. That was you know just the obvious sort of what was he thinking there? Decision of the day.
2: Alison, that that's a really good point. Actually, I think that that Dicko made. I mean, we we've, we've seen weirdly both North London managers, both foreigners, I might add, um, go and make weirdo or unusual um, tactical choices in terms of personnel. Alex Oxlade Chamberlain, that works out. Wenger's a genius. This guy puts Hong Min Son, who incidentally was on fire and doing really well in his in his old position, um, into a wing back role. And it completely backfires and and it's terrible do managers is is this the case where we point at them and be like "Aha stay in your lane, don't try to be so clever
1: positionally he looked out of his depth, but you can only assume they practice this and in training he looked capable of doing it I practiced
2: it for what like for for for, for two days well, yeah, amongst yourselves
1: yeah, yeah, I know I know it's very easy to to laugh at it because his I mean, tackle his, well his tackle was quite poor and it was very costly but Pochettino does take risks, does take risks, and asks players to do. Probably, what his defining uh, negative characteristic, Pochettino, is that he expects a lot of young players, and maybe he expected too much in this instance against a very, a very well organised, well coached Chelsea team.
2: Dico, you get the final word here because you get the, the final assessment of Pochettino. Because it seems to me that Spurs have played in fact i think somebody's actually said that you know they've been the best team in the premier league for the past 18 months cumulatively or whatever and he's this manager who seems to be on the on the cusp of 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 greatness with teams linking him to to barcelona and we linked himself to united of course last year when he had lunch with sir alex ferguson uh he's got this massive long-term contract does this damage the pochettino brand that is is there well, it's or, or is this just a stupid knee-jerk reaction to a to a defeat?
3: I can't. I mean, by me, as you say, I, I I go with the first half of your your question more more on the second. I mean, the fact is they're what well, second in the league, and um, they pushed Leicester closer than um, uh, anyone else last season. I don't think they're going to win the league this year, but they're fighting for the title in a league when they're what their wage bill, every other um, sort of revenue stream is what fifth in the league, is it? Um so, you know, they're punching above their weight and they're punching above their weight often with, with young English players, which is uplifting for um an awful lot of us. And they're doing it with good football, well coached, improving players. I mean they're they're ticking pretty much every box apart from nailing a, a, a trophy or two more and this was, yeah, hugely disappointing for them. But they're up you know, they're up against a pretty formidable team and a team that was sticking in goals like Matic's as well, so, you know, not a great day, um, but I think Pochettino the idea fan. that we should sort of dismiss them as spursy or say that Pochettino is not quite delivering would be hugely harsh given the strides they've made.
2: Is he one of the top three managers in the Premier League, Dicko?
3: Uh Top three? blind blimey. That's a... Put it this way, he's performing... He's going to avoid he the
2: question. He's going to avoid the question.
3: Uh, he, come on. Well, on on form, on the last two years, he's, he's he is as good as anyone. I mean, he's, uh, he, and, and I think, say, it's the range of what he's doing that is so pleasing. You know, you can see, the thing I think I always come back to is, you know, we look at league tables, we look at results, but are players improving? Are players learning? Does it look like a place that you would love to be there day to day? And blimey, Spurs, this looks looks as good as anywhere for that
2: can you guys come up with more than two managers you'd rather have coaching the team you support than Pochettino
4: I think he has to be in the he has to be in the top three managers mm-hmm. doesn't
2: he I want to ask you who the other two are because I don't want to but that's fine so but you you've got him in your top three yeah yeah, absolutely. yeah Allison,
1: yeah it'd be a bit weird not to wouldn't it I mean they are second so, in the table <laughs> so your top three
2: presumably would be Koeman Pochettino and Klopp right
1: no I think Conte is the best coach of the season.
2: No, managers you'd want. It's not the southern benchmark. Managers, what, managers you would I'm fond want managing your of? team. Managers I like. Managers you would want friendly, managing your team.
1: Managers I want managing my team. I'm happy with Klopp managing my team. Thank right. you.
2: Okay, well, what if Klopp were kidnapped by aliens?
1: I'd want probably Pochettino. Ro- Pochettino
3: is happy. I mean, it's, yeah, he's, he's very welcome at Cambridge United anytime he likes, however well he's <laughs> <laughs> you know, doing currently under uh, Mr. Derry. But anyway, that's another story.
2: premier league pfa player of the year award i'm, I'm going to say this uh this is a stupid award we've all been through the stories of why this is a stupid award i don't have a problem with people choosing their peers i have a major problem with the timing of this the first ballots go out in early february when there's more than a third of the season left in the past we've had ex-pros on this and, and elsewhere so uh, telling us all these crazy possibly apocryphal but certainly very believable stories of uh of players just, you know, drawing giant phalluses on the ballot or sometimes a PFA rep in, in frustration because everybody's ignoring him going and and filling out all 25 ballots himself. But the main problem is, is that I think is is the timing of it. But regardless, um Ngolo Kanté wins it this year. Everybody happy with that?
1: It's hard to argue with it, isn't it? I mean, it's like it's like the Oscars, you know. If you miss out on the best actor award one year and everyone thinks it was damn fine film and then you do it again the next year you're just going to get the award he's 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 been integral in in one title win and one probable title win and do the flip side gab of all the negative that comes out of this award on the plus side if you ask players why they voted for a particular player it is interesting because they basically say the players that they either they want to laud the players who have gifts they have not got themselves or the players that just found it really, really hard to come up against and they would have found it very hard to cope with Kante because he's just, one minute he's 20 yards away and the next minute he's there getting the ball off you that must be incredibly irritating and he always makes Chelsea look like they've got 12 players on the pitch which is a staggering feat, a staggering achievement so I think he does, I don't think it's a controversial win at all
2: Dicko, no controversy for you?
3: Oh, uh, well, there's de- de- to we had. I mean, if you're asking me who, who has sort of lifted me off my seat most, it would probably be Hazard. And he's, yeah, at times I just thought he was, you know, close to that sort of unplayable level this season that, you know, very few footballers get to um, equally. Kante, you know, I know we're judging it on one season, but it's pretty hard to sort of forget what, what, the context of him coming from Leicester as well, um, coming to a big club, instantly stepping up. I'm told we like to vote for people we like as well. I'm told by all that have ever dealt with him that he is just immensely likable, immensely humble, um, decent guy as well, which is, is is no bad thing. So I'm certainly not going to sort of you know argue against it, even though uh, well the voting forms have just come through for the s w a one and. I think I'll end up tossing the coin between him and Hazard. Deli Alli could well be in the mix, as could others.
2: But at least you have the luxury that if Delhi Alli scores a hat trick between now and the end of the season, and Spurs go and win the Premier League,
3: oh, the timing, yeah, the timing's crackers crackers. I mean, you, you,
2: you're gonna, you're going to you're going to change your vote to del Alli, presumably, right?
3: No, no, no it's, I mean you've got to judge over yeah. the season, but it's ridiculous that at the time when you know the, the stakes are highest, the the games are carrying ever more. Import week after week, it's ridiculous to go, you know, just at the point where the season is sort of, you know, at its, at, at its most poised and fascinating, you know.
2: Now, here's something that I find interesting about the PFA award, having looked back at its history. And I'll direct the question to you, James. What I found fascinating is since Paul McGraw won it, only two players who were not strikers or attacking midfielders have won. it. one was John Terry, obviously captained uh, Mourinho's Chelsea in 2004-05. The other one was, was Roy Keane. Everybody else has been attacking midfielder or a striker. Now, I chalk this down to all right, footballers, short attention span. They don't really watch football on TV, a lot of them. See the highlights, blah, blah, blah. But then I looked at the early years of of this award, which I believe was in the early 70s, and the first two winners, Bite Your Legs, Norman Hunter and and Colin Todd, both nasty centre-backs. The next two winners were goalkeepers. So you really don't have this legacy. It just seems that... It seems stupid asking you because you weren't around for it, but is there a change in terms of what people appreciate?
4: I think it's a really interesting point. I don't know if it's... uh... If it's kind of a change in how we see things, although that what you've just said would maybe suggest that it is. Year on year, we have this, and and we kind of have it with the Ballon d'Or as well. Although you could argue that Messi and Ronaldo are so exceptional. Nonetheless, it does kind of feel like I, I don't know for what reason. Maybe because be because goals are so paramount that you know goal scorers are always going to be a, the kind of more obvious choice. But I think. Awards like these do seem to sort of consistently bias towards one facet of the game at the expense of the other. And, you know, witness the derision heaped on poor Roy Hodgson when he dared to cast his Ballon d'Or vote for Javier Mascherano. Right. Um, and I and I think it, say, it kind of says something about how exceptional Kante has been, that he has made himself the you know consensus choice for player of the year i mean i think he was a heavy favorite and maybe you know, people thought hazard but i think you know he was pretty much a kind of a very uncontroversial winner in this climate where you know basically defensive players generally don't get the recognition it kind of shows you how exceptional he's been
2: i know alison's favorite player growing up was uh, was a winger and a very talented attacking winger at that uh, one Stevie Highway, right? Right. Uh, Dicko, who was your favorite player growing up? Oh, God, memory lane. Well, please don't mention some guy from played for Cambridge
3: United I never heard of. Just oh, okay. If I, well, your your if, favorite
2: player we would have,
3: you know, plausibly heard of. Uh, it was, If you already know that, it was, well, Kevin Keegan until I met him. Um, no, that's been a bit harsh. <laughs> but I did, I did once queue c- c- up for his autograph, and he was really, really grumpy. Um, I would say... So if, if that spoiled it a little bit for me, it's funny autograph, autograph hunting is revealing a revealing uh, process. but um Brian Robson, I would probably say was um, certainly up there. I saw him play at I think it was Stanford Bridge once when I was a teenager um, and he just blew me away just the sort of just the, the classic British sort of warrior player with an immense skill on top. I, he was fantastic.
2: I you want to ask you that just because I'm going to digress here, but I can do that. Who do you think was more 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 gifted, um, Brian Robson or Roy Keane? And I think back here, of course, to early Roy Keane as well.
3: Wow, good question. Yeah, okay. I mean, Robson has sh- shot on him. Yeah, oh, good question. I think Robson might be more versatile as a slightly more versatile as a player, and I'd say Keane, Keane has something elemental about him, didn't he? That was just just off the almost off the scale uh, at times in terms of just the uh, The the will, I mean, Robson didn't lack for that, but Keane was almost insanely driven. Um, Yeah, who would you choose? Yeah, uh, Who would you choose for a night out? That's an even bigger question.
2: (laughs) Um, Alison, I'm going to put a theory to you about this attacking, defending thing. And it goes back to the number of people I've met who tell me that Duncan Edwards, England would have definitely won the World Cup in 66 with Duncan Edwards as captain. Duncan Edwards is the, would have been, you know, is the greatest player ever and stuff. And then you look at, you know, he was tragically died very young. And I think other than Brian Glanville, I kind of feel that nobody's ever actually seen this guy play. Um, Could it be that in the 1970s and 80s, because there was less, obviously there was less coverage of football. When it came to defenders, and defenders all make mistakes, and the difference is defensive mistakes lead to goals. In the same way strikers make mistakes, but then strikers score goals, so we forget about it, that it was easier, not just in England, but around the world, to, to create sort of this this myth of the, 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 the infallible defender, the defensive colossus, Bobby Moore never getting it wrong, and so on, because there's only one game on television every year. Whereas now, even the very best defenders, you know, people make, people will make one mistake every couple games, even the very best one, because they're humans. When a striker makes a mistake, we just move on and three minutes later they shoot again and score and everything's fine again. Could Could it be a little bit of that?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of that, I think. But I think it's also... We're talking about things that are voted upon. And I think when you come to the crunch and you put your tick next to somebody's name, you will probably end up thinking, that player does things I cannot do. Everyone thinks they're capable of you know running in running a lot blocking blocking ta- blocking tackles making tackles trying to be destructive but not you know deep down you can't do those sort of balletic runs or that surge of pace that and place the ball exactly where you want to those moments of magic it's there's just more magic in being an attacking player and it's just when you come to put the tick next to somebody, you're probably going to be swayed by the moments that made your hairs on the back of your neck stand up. And that doesn't happen very often when you're a defender, watching a defender, probably.
2: That's and all in, there is to it. And, in, and English players in the 1970s didn't actually watch football other than the games they played in. And so that's why they thought that Colin Todd had these magical powers and nobody else in England could, could match.
1: Well, I think... I think, yeah, you saw less football and you probably knew that good teams were built on just being a team and being defensive. And we were into our leaders a lot more and they were usually your centre-halves. And there was just something more heroic about them, possibly,
2: right? Speaking of heroic, we just had the Champions League semi-final draw. We have a Madrid derby, Real Madrid against uh, Atletico and um, Monaco against Juventus, which is also sort of geographically kind of a derby, not very far from each other. Um, Dick, are you excited for the semi-finals?
3: Um, I think so, yeah. I think, um, I mean, Monaco have been, I mean, the way they played, I was lucky enough to be at the uh, chaotic game against City um, and was gripped to the second leg as well. I so, and, and hugely exciting. I mean, the way they play, the flair that they've got uh, is great. Um, I think the madrid derby. I mean, we sort of—I don't know. There's a slight sense of uh, we've 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 been there before, but obviously the intensity is going to be going to be huge yet again. So you know, it's going to have that quality. So yeah, no, I, I mean, I think um, plenty, plenty to uh, plenty to enjoy. I, I mean, I just find Champions League semi-finals at this stage, it, you sort of rarely feel let down, don't you? Just because the you know the stakes are high, teams chasing a bit of history, or in Monaco's case trying to do something a bit different, and. Um, yeah, I'll be watching.
4: It's rare for a team to get to the Champions League semi-final without impressing, but I think all the teams in it have been incredibly impressive. I mean, like Deco, I've been really seduced by Monaco this season. I mean, I was at the uh, the game where they beat Tottenham in the group stages, and it was only 2-1, but it, I mean, it could have been 4-5-1. I mean, is was...
2: Pochettino again? He is, isn't yes, he? Yes, you yes. are, are you?
4: I'll I, I tell you what, I'm praising Jardim instead. That's what I'm doing, because I think he's an absolutely superb coach. What he's done with Monaco this season, a team with no real kind of obvious superstar players, to turn them into arguably the best attacking side in Europe, I think has been a phenomenal coaching achievement. Right, and Al
2: Falcao, by the way, thanks you. Um, but
4: he wasn't, he's not exactly coming off, so he, he, wasn't exa- he wasn't right exactly now. coming off a, a, good, a good couple of seasons, was well,
2: he? My man was injured, but it, 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 a great point about Jardim, because especially when you think that Monaco in previous years was actually a pretty defensive side, even under Jardim. So he's, he's kind of shown that he can do both ends, um, which in a way Juventus, I think, have also shown that they can do both ends. Alisson, do you miss English clubs? Does, does, does it diminish your enjoyment?
1: Oh, I've got used to it. No, it doesn't diminish it, although um, I did have a theory that um, Leicester wouldn't, at the start of the season, Leicester wouldn't do that well in the Premier League, I think, you know, and uh, most people, even Ranieri said it would it would be a tricky season. But I did think they'd be addicted to fairy tales and that they would win a cup competition. So I did think <laughs> I did think they might actually the make League. the final of the Champions League. In the narrative sense, I think the most amazing story would have been for Leicester to have continued yet another fairy tale. But that side, as long as um there's variety in the semi final lineup and there is, I mean you've got four clubs there with such different approaches and styles of play and history I think it's an amazing semi-final lineup and I think probably most neutrals will root for Monaco simply because they just seem to say hey we'll just try and score more than you.
2: I do wonder though if Real Madrid win it again three wins in four years are we going to have to reevaluate a lot of things such as all the criticism that we've directed at Florentino Perez, especially me, such as the fact that, oh, you need experience, blah, 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 great players don't make good managers, yada, yada, yada. All this stuff that, all these true footballing truisms that we've thrown out there, is Zidane going to go and subvert all that? Does it actually become, if you've got the best players in the world, and I think Real Madrid have the best players in the world, by some margin at this stage, even with Gareth Bale on one leg. I don't know, I, I just wonder, maybe, maybe we take a step back or maybe we've overrated the role of the manager. Maybe we shouldn't be chucking all this money at your Pep Guardiola's and your Jurgen Klopp's because they don't have the manpower. They don't have the manpower. All right, enough of this uh, bloviating uh, by me. Uh, How about some quick hits instead? Anthony Martial shines as Manchester United win away to Bournemouth to make it 23 unbeaten in the Premier League. Dico, do you want to comment on their top four hopes or tell me whether we really should have been seeing much more from Anthony Martial this season because he's actually pretty good, or maybe even both.
3: Uh, top four hopes, uh, Thursday night, the Manchester Derby. How are we going? Um, fascinating game. Uh, Martial, uh, yeah, I think we well, wish we had seen more of him, but, but just because he's got a bit of pace and flair and excitement, but Mourinho likes players who conform to his views, and um, Martial's clearly had a bit of learning to do on that. So you don't cross Jose.
2: Crystal Palace win again, away to Liverpool. That's 19 of a possible 24 points in Big Sam's last eight games. James, does stuff like this leave you wondering what might have been England-wise, since you're a big England fan, if not for that pint of wine keynote speaker incident? I mean, it it kind of
4: has to, doesn't it? I mean, I I wasn't kind of a massive proponent of Allardyce for England, But we kind of oscillate with England managers, don't we? We oscillate between, I just want someone to, you know, make the most of our limited resources, accept that we're not a great team and make us hard to beat, and, oh, I just want us to play great football even if we lose. For the former option, you you kind of have to be intrigued by what Allardyce would have done, but
2: we'll never know. Speaking of that game at Anfield, Alisson, qualified ref, there was an incident when Coutinho was clearly fouled by uh, former Liverpool player-turned-Judas Martin Kelly. Uh, stayed on his feet and failed to score. Now, do you blame Coutinho for not going down or do you actually blame the referee for not calling it back and awarding the penalty because he was clearly fouled?
1: Yeah, uh, this is something I think referees need to work on. They need to, as a group, decide that they are going to award penalties where a player hasn't fallen down but could easily have done so because that way it's a big step in eradicating diving. So you bring in retrospective analysis for diving, which I'm slightly uncomfortable with because I, I, it's not always clear that you can know it's a dive. But if you take away the motivation to dive in the first place because you know you're going to be rewarded, then that has to be the best step to, to getting rid of something we all hate so much.
2: Dico, uh quick aside on this one. You and I are, are, are brothers of the VAR cause. Um, this would have been reviewable by VAR, right?
3: It would have been. I mean, look, if this is where we're in that classic grey area of, of the way it's been set up is that the VR will only intervene if the referee has made a clear mistake. So would this qualify as a clear mistake? Uh, debatable. This is why we're trying out experiments. I think this one would end up possibly falling in the... You know, people people who worry they are not have anything to debate about, they shouldn't, because um, this might have fallen into a gray area, and there's going to be plenty of gray areas.
2: Middlesbrough travel to Bournemouth, who are supposed to be on the beach, and they get spanked 4-0. Uh, Dicko, they're done now, right?
3: They are done uh, on points, on momentum, on everything else. So I think um, George can uh, welcome Newcastle up, I think, this evening, can't they? So, which is a relief for him because Sunderland are gone and Middlesbrough are gone. So at least he's got the tune back to uh, keep him in, uh, in daily work in the Premier League.
2: Marco Silva has to play with 10 men for over an hour for another bad decision. And um, Hull still go out and defeat Watford 2-0. James, when you look at his resources and what he's achieved, he really is the magic man, isn't
4: he? Yeah, I think he is. I mean, you, you look at his home record. He's got the you know,
2: silver touch.
4: The silver touch. You look at his home record going back through his time at Olympiacos, right the way back to his time at Estoril. It's absolutely incredible. I think what Hull actually did really well and went slightly under the radar was they bought very well in January. They bought very good players. You know, Renocchia has got 30 old Italy caps, hasn't he? Grzycki scored. Do you not like Renocchia?
2: I, I I like him as a I, as a person. We could spend a whole debate about him. He is somebody with a hugely unusual set of skills whose confidence was completely destroyed and had basically been horrendous on the pitch for three years. He's obviously seized the opportunity. Well done to him. Mm.
4: And, and Krasicki is a player who's always impressed me whenever I've seen him play for Poland in international tournaments. Markovic is clearly a player of some talent, but they're all players who I think traditionally people would have thought, oh, no. Buy players who've got Premier League experience. You know, don't go for these sorts of players. And Hull did it. And I think it's massively played off.
2: I think at some point the story of how Hull ran their transfer business in January is going to fully come out. And people might appreciate Marco Silva even more. Let's not write off Swansea either. Alison, I have a soft spot for Fernando Llorente. You've got one for Gilfie Sigurdsson. We both have a soft spot for Paul Clement. They did the job against Stoke. Should they keep hope alive?
1: Well, they have to, don't they? It's really tough. It's not in their own hands. Um, They have to hope that Hull slip up a bit more than they do. But there was a fantastic atmosphere. I was there at the Liberty Stadium on Saturday. Amazing atmosphere, a real sense of belief. Leon Britton bought every single member of the squad a DVD of the Swansea story told them to watch it. He said most of them seemed to have done so. What did
2: you do, quiz them afterwards?
3: I, said, <laughs> I actually called? said, I said, did you test
1: them? He said, I don't think that had gone down very well but they did mention little <laughs> snippets from the films which proved they'd watched it because you know, in 2001 they were spiralling out of business and um, a group of fans got together to make sure that didn't happen. The trouble is Hull have got momentum too so it's, it's, it's going to be, Leon Britton said the best they can hope for is it goes to the wire and that is the best they can hope for. And I have a question for you, Gab. Why, which, you. surprise, surprise, is all about the Clásico. And how come Lionel Messi seems to play even better when he's got a little hanky stuck up his
2: lip? <laughs> uh, the remarkable thing about uh, about this game, which Barcelona won, I mean, a, this is probably the best Clásico in uh, in years, certainly. For the neutral, you had up and down. You had everything going on. You, Gareth Bale getting injured early, Thomas Rodriguez coming on to make it 2-2 after Sergio Ramos had been sent off, 10-man Madrid battling back. And then you had this incredible finale where where Messi having scored an exceptional goal, I thought, for the opener, which, by the way, was vintage Barcelona goal. Eh, something like 18 touches, eight players involved, boom, boom, boom. One and, but that was, weirdly, that was possibly... The worst of the three goals because Rakitic had one of those long-range rocket which which you guys all seem to love in this country and then the final goal uh, I mean Messi sprinting uh, across the pitch, counter literally just about the last kick of the game uh, to win it 3-2. Absolutely stunning, exhausting. Sergio Ramos now has five red cards in a classical, 22 red cards in his career surreal how you can be one of the best defenders in the world with that kind of record but bizarrely I think he is and Zinedine Zidane will go back and wonder if uh, maybe playing Bale was a mistake uh, and then substituting when he got injured, sending on Asensio was maybe even more of a mistake instead of Isco, who I wrote about in the game this week and uh, you should all read that column even though he didn't get to play a single minute in that game. Barcelona are now level on points, Real Madrid have a game in hand I don't know, I mean this might possibly go down to the wire when you consider that Real Madrid will necessarily, to some degree, prioritise the Champions League.
1: And the sad thing is it clashed with a line of duty on BBC One.
2: There's this thing they've invented called iPlayer?
1: No, no, no. There is is always one programme per season you have to watch live with the nation and Line of Duty is that programme.
2: Do you not own a telephone? You could could find two screens, you could watch both.
1: No, no, there is one programme per season that you have to watch and give your undivided attention to.
2: Line of duty only lasts an hour, right?
1: But it lasted the final hour of the Classico.
2: But then after that, you go back and you flip back to the Classico. But that's not
1: as good not live either. This
2: is true. This is true.
1: Very difficult evening, Gab, for most people, I think, making that choice.
2: Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many, many thanks to my excellent guest today, Matt Dickinson, who ran a marathon in a choo-choo yesterday and lived to tell the tale while raising a lot of uh, money for an important cause. Alison Rudd, who did not, but got to watch Line of Duty, and the only living gear print in captivity, James. Uh, remember, you can sign up to our newspaper. It's just £12 for a 12-week trial. You get all sorts of goodies, including video highlights. That's right, you don't need to go and watch Match of the Day. If you don't want to, you can just sit and watch our little highlight clips instead should you so choose. And it's not just Premier League highlights, it's Champions League highlights as well. So please press that subscribe button on wherever you choose to download your podcast because, of course, you can also subscribe to uh, our podcast. And you can leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, If it's a good review, it'll help Uh, people find us and uh, we will grow as a tribe of game podcast listeners. If it's a bad review, then a puppy will die. So please don't leave one. Till next time. Bye-bye.
4: The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.
0: only from rustolium